Hi, I'm Dr. Alan Green, pediatrician, and I'd like to talk with you tonight about the brain stage. I remember vividly when I was a pediatric resident in training going to a Grand Rounds about a surprising topic, the function of the brain and the function of the skin. And one of the things the dermatologist talked about was a common procedure, freezing warts. Uh, and freezing warts was then and is still one of the most common ways to get rid of warts. And what she talked about was how wildly different the results were in different studies. People used the same tools, the same techniques, and got wildly different results. Why? Well, one clue to that is that the freezing doesn't kill the wart virus, doesn't eliminate it. Instead, what it does is create a signal that then later triggers the immune system to knock out the wart, but different in different settings. Another thing she talked about was the fastest pain relief for a child who skins their knee is a smile or a kiss from mom. And that was sweet and not terribly surprising. But what was surprising to me was that the wound also heals faster. How could it be that the complex machinery of wound healing is changed just by attention of the mom. Another question. Suppose you have a red pill and a blue pill that are made of exactly the same medicine in exactly the same dose, in the same manufacturer, you might expect that they would work the same in studies, but you'd be wrong. Just because of their appearance, the two pills consistently work differently. So I want to share with you just two things that will explain all of that and give you a fresh window into how our body works. Number one, every pill has a hidden brain stage. Every pill has a hidden brain stage. So what is a brain stage? And the best way to think about that is to compare it to something where we've got a lot of science, something that you may not have heard of called the cephalic phase of digestion. Now, that's not phallic phase, that's cephalic phase. Cephalic just means having to do with the head. And digestion is an incredible process where we take food from the environment, goes into our body, and intricately is assimilated into us through a very complicated process. But what you may not know is that digestion begins before the food ever makes it into the mouth. So here's how it works. You spy a delicious slice of key lime pie. And when you see it, the light waves are hitting the, the pie. They, they reflect off of that. They're focused by the lens of the eye. They make it to the retina where they're then turned into electrical impulses that shoot along the optic nerve through the optic chiasm, through the lateral cingulate nucleus, and all the way to the visual cortex in the back of the brain where the images process and then on to assign meaning and association. And what do you know about that? What does that remind you of? You may have a conscious thought about it, but either way, the message then is sent down the vagus nerve to the stomach and stomach acid, stomach juices, gastric juices begin to be formed. And this physical change in the body happens just from the sight of the pie. 
So the way it works, number one, sensors transmit the environment to the brain. And it, by the way, it's not just vision. Smell can do it. Touch can do it. The sound of bacon sizzling can do it. Even the word chocolate can do it. But sensors transmit environment to the brain. And the more senses that are involved or the stronger they are, the more powerful the transmission. So seeing it is one thing. If you see it and smell it both, it's a more profound response. Number one, sensors transmit the environment to the brain. Number two, there may or may not be a conscious thought. And if there is, it's likely related to a, a prior uh, sensing of something. And then number three, the brain anticipates what's about to happen, associates it with other memories you have in the past and, and experiences you've had, simulates what's about to happen, and orchestrates a cascade of responses. And those responses are, are called CPRs, cephalic phase responses. And there are lots of them. We just talked about one, the hydrochloric acid in the stomach. But you make saliva, you make digestive enzymes in the mouth, you make immunoglobulins, the hydrochloric acid we talked about, gastrointestinal enzymes, immunoglobulins, leptin, ghrelin, bicarbonate, cholecystokine, and on and on and on. You secrete insulin before the first bite of food makes it into your mouth. And the insulin amount varies depending on what the food is you're salivating over. Now this cephalic phase response, this brain stage where it plays out, isn't just in you and me. It's so important to living things is also found in our primate cousins. They also have a rich, varied brain stage of food. And not just them, it's in other mammals like dogs. In fact, it was first worked out in dogs over a hundred years ago by Pavlov, who found that dogs would salivate, they would create the gastric juices when they saw food. But then if that, that experience were linked to a sound like a bell or a buzzer or a, a physical experience or a time of day, that they would, they would have the cephalic phase, they'd have the brain stage just from the other thing, the bell ringing, even if the food wasn't present. And it's not just in mammals, it's in birds and even in the striped bass, it's in fish as well. For us, just to put it in perspective, about 30% up to 30% of all the gastric juices you secrete happen as part of the brain stage, not after the food gets to the stomach. Or that would mean for each of us, we can make up to about 10 ounces a day of gastric juices just from the cephalic phase. Now, so that's the brain stage. That's what a brain stage is. Let's talk about an edge case, something that's a food and also that's a drug. And that edge case is coffee. Now, coffee is one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world. It's got its own distinct flavor and aroma. Uh, but it also has caffeine, which is the number one most used psychoactive drug in the world. Well, some researchers a few years ago in Norway decided to do a study where they, they hook people up to look at all kinds of minor changes in their physiology, their skin conductance, their heart rate, heart rate variability. And half of them were given coffee to drink, and the other half were tricked and told they were getting coffee, but there was really no caffeine in it. It was really decaf. And what they found was that, at first at least, the ones who were tricked also had the heart rate changes, the skin conductance changes, um, and were more alert, the blood pressure changed. They were tricked into 
believing that it was actually coffee, responded like it was coffee, at least for a while, until the caffeine didn't really show up. And they called this a placebo response. And the idea behind it, a placebo is something that is given in, in, a, in a test that is actually ineffective, or at least not specifically effective, and it's used to distinguish something from what, what the real effect is. And many medical studies, are, there's a placebo on the one hand that's supposed to not be effective, and then there's the drug on the other hand. So the idea of placebo versus drug is very common, but I take a different approach. What matters most is the placebo plus the drug. It's, it's the total effect of the experience and the medication. And what are the benefits and what are the downsides? So let me tell you about another study that was done just with real coffee itself. And with the real coffee, the people were set up with monitors so you could detect changes immediately. And with real coffee the, and caffeine, the drug, at the first sip of coffee, immediately the body began to change. The heart rate went up. The, the level of alertness went up. It was immediate. And if you think about it, when you swallow coffee, it has to, it takes eight or nine seconds to go down into the stomach and then it turns around in there for a bit. It goes down to the intestines. It gets broken up into little bits. It gets absorbed. It could be half an hour before significant levels of caffeine make it into the bloodstream. But immediately they responded. So the actual thing, there was a brain stage that happened as part of the response. And as a minor side note, interestingly, the way the brain stage worked was different than the way caffeine actually works. Caffeine works on some receptors called adenosine receptors, and it, it, makes, it delays tiredness. But the effect of the coffee that was studied and found to be on bitter receptors, bitter taste receptors and aroma receptors, and it worked on the vagus nerve to, have a, to create, to mimic the response of caffeine. The body wasn't tricked. It knew what it was doing. And by the way, you can create that brain stage of coffee even just from the smell of coffee. In fact, there are studies in animals showing that just by inhaling the aroma of coffee, it can change the expression of 17 genes in the brain and change the levels of nine different proteins in the brain just from smelling it. And let me go even a step further. There was a study that was done where they took people and they had them read a story about coffee and the other half read the same story but about tea. And the ones who read about coffee, the association of their brain was strong enough that their heart rates went up from that. So coffee's a drug, coffee's a food, coffee has a brain stage, so do other drugs. And one of the really profound studies that I've come across was done in Italy, where they took people who they came in and they were actually giving them powerful drugs or powerful medication, medical treatments. But they didn't, some of them didn't know when they got it. So there were post-operative patients who were either in, who had significant pain. And half of them were told, you're getting morphine now. The other half weren't told that, but they got the same amount of morphine. And when they didn't know they were getting morphine, it was less than half as effective. It was, it was more than twice as effective if they were told powerful drug, but there was still a brain stage that was a part of it. They didn't know, not as effective. Others got IV Valium for severe anxiety after a procedure. And the ones who were not told, there was not much effect. The ones who knew they were getting it, it was a profound effect of a powerful drug. 
my take home for me is this, that if I'm ever going to give a medication to someone or do a treatment for someone, I really want them to know what we're doing, why we're doing it, why we expect it to work, and what we expect the effect to be. Because when we're engaged with a treatment at the brain level, we can get the full benefit of the best treatments. So point one was that every pill has a hidden brain stage. Point two, everything is a pill. And by pill here, I just mean something from the outside that has an impact on our health, that maintains our health or enhances our health or perhaps diminishes it. So we've been talking medications. I got to tell you, surgery is a pill and perhaps one of the most important pills. And one of the studies that, again, really blew me away was a, a fabulous orthopedic surgeon at Baylor University. Um, he was the orthopedic surgeon for an NBA team and for the Olympics team. Um, and he was doing arthroscopy on the knee of people who had osteoarthritis that had had moderate to severe pain for six months, who had x-ray changes that hadn't responded to uh, the best medical treatment for at least six months. And then they signed up to be in the study of treating the osteoarthritic pain and lack of mobility and gunk that was there in the knee. And so 180 people about, and 60 of them were signed to have what their state-of-the-art surgery was, which is where they would um, insert the arthroscope, they would go in and shave and clean up the cartilage and the joint, they would flush saline in to get rid of all the debris, and that was about a third of them were going to get that. About a third of them were assigned to just get the flushing out. Maybe that would be enough to have close to the effect of the actual surgery, and they'd flush it with saline. The third group was very interesting, just to get a baseline. They called it the placebo group. And what they did for them is no surgery at all. They went into the room, the nurses who brought them in, nobody in the team knew which were which. They opened the envelope after the patient was already unconscious. If they were in the no surgery group, they made three one centimeter incisions around the knee. And they either played a tape with the noises of a real operation or the surgeon would ask for the instruments, but they would do the same amount of time. They'd move the knee around a little bit when they were talking about inserting something. They would splash it with saline when, when they talked about irrigating it, but nothing went inside at all. And at the end of the time, they sewed it up. Everybody got the same bandage. Everybody had the same post-operative pain meds. Everybody, um, the people caring for them afterwards didn't know who was whom. They stayed in the same post-surgical setting. And then they followed those people for two years, saw them seven different times over two years. And you might think that one group was better earlier, but two years out, they weren't that much different, or, or maybe in the middle they were and they all ended up the same, or maybe they ended up wildly different at the end. But the answer was, the good news, the surgery worked. Shocking news, there was no meaningful difference between the three groups, either short-term, medium-term, or long-term, either in how they felt about pain or how quickly they could walk 100 feet or how quickly they could climb a flight of stairs. Zero difference. The brain stage is so powerful that that setting, that ceremonial impact of being in the operating room and going through that journey could trigger the body to heal to the same extent as those who actually had the procedure.
That's not always the case, but it's a glimpse into how powerful the brain stage can be. And you want to tap into that on top of the best treatments. Surgery is a pill. Connections are a pill. When we connect with one another, it can be extraordinarily powerful. A touch, a glance can relieve pain, can, can speed the healing process. When one spouse dies, the other one can get a lot sicker. Um, in, in pediatrics, there was a story that I found rather interesting uh, as, as a young practitioner and up until recently. And that is when a kid has croup at night, they have swollen vocal cords, there's a barking cough. Often the parents are scared, the child's scared. And they will call up the pediatrician or the answering service. They'll be told to go to an a, a urgent care center or an emergency room. And then the classic story is they bundle the child out. They go out into the cold night air. And by the time they get to the ER or the urgent care center, their cough is a lot better and everyone's relaxed. And they said, really? They were sick before. And for the longest time, I believed that was the thing. Cold night air solved it. And it, it probably still helps. But since I've been part of a practice that does house calls, I've seen another side of the story. The people call up, everybody's barking, they're concerned, but instead of me sending them out, I go over. And again, by the time I get there, they, they say as soon as the kid heard that the doctor's coming, they started relaxing. And I get there and I examine them, and they may or may not still need medications, but there's tremendous improvement often before I get there, recruitment with so many other things. Connection is a pill. And connection with an expert is a pill. There was a study in the New York Times in January of, of uh, 2019 uh, going through a series of studies that were done at Stanford. And what they did is they, they injected histamine into the forearm of patients, uh, something that will create a big, red, itchy uh, welt of impressive welt. It's part of what's done like an allergy skin testing. But in the first study, one group had that. The other group, a doctor came along at the right moment and truthfully said that from this point on, it should start getting better. And the group that had that simple, truthful statement, it did start getting better right then and faster. But the most important part, I think, of the suite of studies was that the language itself is good, but the really powerful thing came from the nature of the interaction. The doctors that were clearly competent, unrushed, and caring, had dramatically faster and better results than those who were perceived as incompetent or not connected or, or rushed. The nature of the relationship, of your expert relationship, matters. Speaking of nature, nature itself is a pill. There's been a lot of research recently about how our environment impacts our, our, our health in short-term and long-term ways. There was a recent meta-analysis that was done of 20 different studies looking at blood pressure when you're surrounded by nature and blood pressure, systolic and diastolic blood pressures lower around nature, the brain stage of nature. And of course, food is a pill. What we eat, what we even look at and salivate at can impact our health in the short-term and long-term in really profound ways. So again, Every pill has a hidden brain stage, and everything is a pill. So what do you want to do about that? Number one, just in the same way that mindful eating is valuable, so is mindful medication. If you are taking a pill, rather than just doing it mindlessly, pause for just a moment. 
or giving a bill and remember what it's there for, what it's supposed to do, what you expect. Second, if you are going to work with an expert, choose someone who is competent and caring that you can connect with. And third, go for the very best medical treatments you can, but don't miss out on the benefit by ignoring the brain stage. Start looking for it everywhere.